Hello and welcome to another architecture podcast. In each episode, I talk to a different architect about how they created an amazing home. By focusing on one project in detail, the podcast offers a real backstage insight into what influences the design and how architects work in different locations around the world with clients to create an inspirational home. I'm your host, George Bradley. I'm an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. I love designing homes myself and this podcast is a great way for me to share my curiosity and enthusiasm with you. In this episode, I'm joined by the architect Simon Pendle and we talk about the project Beaconsfield House. The home is an extension and renovation of a 1940s workers' cottage located in the suburbs of the Australian city of Perth. The scheme retains the original cottage fronting onto the street and extends it to the rear with a new extension to create new living spaces, a master bedroom and a multi-purpose space for the artist owners to display their work. This is no ordinary extension, however. The new parts have been designed intentionally as a spatial sequence that unveils itself in a series of sculptural, primitive, cave-like spaces. The existing house is linked to the extension via a huge upturned boat curved ceiling and the curves and circular forms are repeated in the walls and window openings. The project is unexpected in its suburban surroundings and it has a hint of Corbusier in its use of material, form and colour. If you would like to explore this project before listening to the episode, pictures and links to the architect can be found on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Simon, and welcome to another architecture podcast. Hi, George. Thanks for having me on. Um, we're going to be talking about um, your project, Beaconsfield House, uh, located in, in Perth. Um, today and a fantastic project and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with the listener. Um, could you give maybe the listener a bit of context of this house? It's located in the suburbs in Perth um, and just give an idea, a sort of flavour of the kind of context that this this house sits within. Yeah, so I mean starting with Perth, it's a very broad sprawling suburb. Um, the uh, Most people live in detached housing on reasonably large blocks of land. Traditionally, that was a quarter acre, and now I think the average lot size is down to about 400 square metres. Um, back then, lots used to be really big and houses used to be really small. So a 1,000 square metre block might have an 80 or 100 square metre house on it. Um, in the contemporary period, sort of over the last 10 or 15 years, as lots have gotten smaller, houses have become enormous, which means that We've lost a lot of landscape. So Beaconsfield is a pu- uh, really part of a time frame um, around about the 1930s, 1940s. It would have been turned into a suburb, probably was maybe partially farmland, partially bushland at that particular time. And a lot of it's workers' cottages, so it was probably lower-cost housing, probably people working at Fremantle Port, which is only sort of a 10-minute drive away. It's sort of southeast of the Fremantle port. Uh, and so it was probably a feeder suburb for light industrial workers, um, port workers and so on. So if you go there and walk down the streets, what's happened since is um, it's 
relatively leafy, so quite a lot of um, uh, sort of tree lines, streets, uh, peppermint trees, eucalypt trees, and so on. Um, so it's got a good stock of um, uh, natural cover. Um, all our suburbs are fenced with asbestos or metal fencing um, so that everyone's divided up with houses in the middle of them and in the, of the lots. Um, and workers' cottages are typically really very, very simple, very, very cheap, and often at the time would have been owner-built. Um, so typical of the area, um, this particular house was uh, a timber-framed house using our local hardwood Jarrah, um, lined in asbestos and Jarrah timber boards on the outside, um, really no nothing going on inside, just very light plasterboard, no insulation, you know, very little sort of between you and the weather and it gets very hot in summer and, and quite cold in winter here. So um, those sorts of workers' cottages would have been repeated up and down the street. And over the last, or the period since this particular house was built, uh, most houses only last 20 or 30 years in Perth, so quite a few of them were taken down and rebuilt in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, so there's a real mixed stock of housing but this is one of a number on the street that have survived and what, what typically happens with these houses i'm thinking of like the typical have housing stock where i am is a victorian terrace and a lot of work is goes into keeping them alive and refurbishing them and it's expensive work and it's an ongoing sort of thing what about these typical workers cottages if if most of them only lasted 20 years is it typical for owners to to come in and refurbish them and bring them up to scratch or do they do they tend to get flattened no the great one of the tragedies of perth suburbia is that um uh once a house is deemed to be by whoever owns it past its use by date um it's usually seen as being a cheaper alternative to run a bulldozer through it put it in landfill and start again um Mm -hmm. and so Perth, I kind of keep, you know, I've made reference to it as being perpetually new. Every 20 to 30 years, it seems to renew itself. Um, and some suburbs get to a point where they do stabilise. I guess values of houses and land get to a certain point uh, where people um, want to retain them or maybe in the less affluent areas don't have the op- option at all. Um, so it's probably the upwardly mobile crew that come in and, uh, knock things down and rebuild them, and and the, the other the polar sort of um, extremes is when housing stock gets saved. So in a Victorian terrace, you would go to great pains to restore it and modify it, whereas we typically run a bulldozer through it. Yeah, and then the these clients here then of uh, uh, this project, so Jurek uh, and Jurek uh, and Michele, Jurek uh, and Michelle. Jurek and Michelle, sorry. It's okay. Um, they, they lived, they lived in, before they approached you, they'd already been living in this workers' cottage for a while, had they? Yeah, for probably 25 years, 26 years, they've had it. Um, and it was pretty derelict at that time. They, they bought it. It had been a rental for a long time and hadn't been upkept and was in pretty poor condition. Um, and being artists, you know, they, didn't have a great amount to spend on it. So they just kept it together. And, you know, they had some funny signs on the front. I think it was uh, it was something to referring it to being palatial. They had this thing on the front door and it was kind of a joke 
that the, the local neighbours would walk by and see this reference to it being a much more palatial house stuck on the front door uh, sign. Um, and so really they were just in a holding pattern. I mean, they loved the house. Um, it's the simplicity, despite the simplicity, it's got real character. And those houses really do build uh, lovely suburbs and they operate in a way that maybe a contemporary house doesn't. And clearly they just the sense of a sense of age, you know, timber buildings are not that um, normal in Perth. We're a brick city. And so when there's precincts of little timber cottages, uh, they tend to form unusual places which are really quite quaint and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And what were they looking for then when they, when they approached you? Did they have a clear idea of what they, they wanted? Well, the brief, they just needed sort of some extra space. So they knew they needed an extra bedroom. They needed a, a living room. They needed to address the original cottage to stabilise it and give it its next lease on life. They were very keen not to run a bulldozer through it. They were uh, very attached to it. They felt they had a custodianship of it that they wanted to um, accept and carry on with that it contributed to the neighbourhood. So it really, it was just a bedroom, a bathroom and a living room and to um, modify and upgrade the original cottage. But there, by being the kinds of artists and the kinds of people they are, they had really high aspirations that they wanted to do something um, that sort of met with some of the things that they maybe have connection to or think about and um, their brief to us was to give them something special, something unusual. And I do remember in our first meeting with them, we made lots and lots of physical models in the office, found the first scheme that we thought this has something that we could put, put in front of the client. And their first response was a very long pause. And then that's fine, Simon, but it's just not odd enough. So um, <laughs> it really set the benchmark that we needed to bring our A game to the project and yeah. so we went back to the drawing boards and kept modelling until we found something better. Yeah, I like that. It's not odd enough. Um, so what? Okay, let's summarise what you've what you've done here. Then, what was your what was your proposal that did sort of satisfy the the oddness factor? Well, essentially, it takes the original cottage and it accepts its um, simplicity and its directness. Um, Uric, one of Uric's heroes in art is Donald Judd, so we'd been looking at books on um, his, um, the work that he'd done in his apartment and so on, just the directness and um, kind of a direct severity in that. Um, and so that we really didn't want to turn it into something that it wasn't, but we wanted to work on those limits and that sense of restraint to push it in a slightly different direction. So it's got this sort of intentional thinness about it. With the extension, we felt it was appropriate, having had a number of conversations, that um, the idea of a cave-like series of rooms eventually came out really a fair way through the design process. And I need to say that um, Eureka and Michelle are friends. Um, Eureka used to work in a public art practice with my former practice partner, so he was in the office all the time. And when that partnership dissolved, I moved into Eureka's studio. He's got a sort of a large factory unit and he rented me the front room. And so it meant that we were talking 
regularly, you know, every second or third day coming in and, and discussing what was going on and then meeting with Michelle. So it was a very, uh, it was a project where the clients were very, very involved. And so that meant that the evolution of the project, um, as something that should be cave-like, that should have this sort of sense of density, uh, this sense of mass, and the sense that as you look out through it, that you would see a, a verdant garden was really important, that there was something about being in a room, a series of rooms that were severe in a way, to look out into a garden that was the opposite to that. So that tension was um, really important. And we just sort of traded projects that they might have been looking at and I might have been looking at and um, found our way to that as an idea. Mm-hmm. So essentially what you've you've got here is you've got a preserved worker's cottage in its form that you that you enter at the at the front of the site but then on the back you've created i don't know how we describe the, the shape here maybe a kind of l shape but with curves um extension to the back and this is where you start having these kind of crazy distorted forms could you could you explain it better than me like so to try and visualize what from a form point of view yeah well, i guess if you arrive at the cottage it's almost um like a uh, to say it's Palladian would be an overstatement, but it is almost classical because mm. um, my former practice partner, Stephen Neal, had done a veranda conversion. So it's got this very sort of strict aluminium louvered veranda on the front of a pitched roof uh, cottage that's square in plan. It's got a little um, sort of masonry staircase that takes you up about five or six steps to the front door and you go through this sort of filter zone into the house And these cottages typically were divided by a hall down the centre with two rooms each side. And the rooms on the right-hand side were still intact. The hallway was intact but with one wall missing and the other two rooms had since been connected. So you're really walking through one half of this little cottage, which is maybe about 10 by 10 10 metres in plan. Mm -hmm. And then at the through those two rooms that have been joined, which is now the living room and uh, uh, kitchen, you come to a breakfast room where the ceiling comes down, compresses uh, really, really close, about 2.1 metres, so that you can touch it as you walk past, compresses very light, and in a very short amount of time, shoots up to about 6 metres high. And that, what I was calling the tower, which has a sort of a breezy brickwork filtered skin, uh, is intended to address the the rising sun each morning, hence it being a breakfast room. And that whole connection with the kind of the movement of the sun and the seasons and having a kind of a cosmic dimension was important. Off that very tall room or compressed and then tall room, there's a little portal to your right, which squeezes you down as you get pushed through into the next room. And that's a kind of a longer room predominantly in brick with a kind of a ceiling that starts to sort of um, dip and has a uh, an incision in it with Eve Klein blue, uh, which means that it's got this sense of a portal up to um, sort of the infinite. So you can't really perceive the edges of this thing. And mm-hmm. originally I designed that to be black, but Eurex's contribution to that part of the project was to change it to Eve Klein blue purely because depth perception is lost and corners are hard to register, so there's this sense of something above that is not entirely comprehensible. And as you go through this room, you're drawn to a little bit of top light on a back wall that's sort of bent. 
then you go up a series of steps past a big opening to a, a bedroom that's in really rich colours, almost like the inside of a swimming pool, where the ceiling's much more compressed. And from that room, you look out to a garden. There's also a skylight above the bed, which allows them to see the moon at night uh, and illuminates the room with moonlight at night time. And that's really the last room in the sequence. Mm-hmm. And it really is a sequence, isn't it? I mean, I like, I like the way you're describing it as it is, it's like a, it's very sculptural. It's a sequence of forms that you're going through and you're talking about compression and opening up and then seeing the morning. Um, it's got a very, to me, a very kind of Corbusier element to it. I think it's maybe that curved ceiling, but just that there's a sense of liberation here of playing, playing with forms that maybe you wouldn't get to do with, with many other clients. Um, and how was that being explored early on? Was that was all physical models, was it? Yeah, all in physical models. So there's probably, uh, you know, very, very small ones that were sort of only, you know, five centimetres long that, I don't know, ones to 500 that grew to 200 to 100. And by the end of it, we were modelling it sort of at ones to 50 and ones to 20. So there's a sequence of those. Um, and... I just find that I have to work manually. I start most of our projects still on a drawing board um, before mm-hmm. we get to the computer um, or we start with a model and we model and then sometimes we make the drawings off the model and I really like uh, there's a Stephen Bates YouTube video that I show students where he talks about making large-scale models, designing only in model form and then doing survey drawings after the fact Um so that's something that we're aware of as we're working. Um, and that direct contact with physical things is um, quite mm-hmm. important uh, in my practice. Yeah. Do you think you can only really achieve a building like this through that kind of approach? And I'm going to go back actually to that term that the clients used of odd. Um, there is something slightly odd about this ceiling, it's, as in in the sense it's completely unexpected. You look at it and... I've been looking at this project and sort of thinking, what is that? What is it doing? What's it achieving? Um, that you, do you think that's through the physical model that you only really get to see that potential and go with a proposal like that? I don't know. I mean, there's lots of people that do amazing work without the use of physical models. So I suspect you can do it without doing physical models. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just that I find that... Some people, see, some architects see models as an extravagance, as an expense that they won't recoup on a project. Whereas I find that working in that way gets us to where we want to be a lot mm-hmm. quicker and the testing can happen faster. Despite the fact that it is cumbersome, it does actually allow us to make decisions. And I guess as we're modeling, we tend to be making decisions about a material attitude or a detailing attitude or something about another architect's work surfaces in the process. So there's something about that, the the manualness of it, that allows um, decisions to be made reasonably quickly. Um, The other thing I tend to do is often I'll photograph these models and then in Photoshop I'll start cutting and drawing and, and adding layers to sort of work into the photograph to find something that I haven't been able to find three-dimensionally and the sort of the space that's painted Eve Klein blue in that house which I talked about the infinite I'd been really struggling with that ceiling I'd been completely overworking it for some time it was a whole range of different sort of formal uh, uh, attempts and material attempts and eventually 
It was actually the extracting of a little corner, a little triangle that we just took it away and painted it out. Uh, and the act of taking away ended up cracking that room. It didn't need anything more than uh, a nice ceiling by the end of it. Um, and you mentioned, as you were sort of talking, doing the walkthrough of the project, as a view of the moon and uh, the sort of slightly cosmic element. I've read on your website about this project sort of responding also to the kind of uh, aboriginal heritage of the region and you've talked about the six six seasons um, that are observed can you maybe tell me a little bit about that in relation to this design how it's influenced it yeah i i'm i wouldn't make explicit connection to those things um i think there was an article well there's an article written in ar um in december um which made those connections more explicitly and that's because the the writer and I were having those conversations and she um uh and I think reasonably you know connected that to those things I'm probably more hesitant to do that for fear of um cultural appropriation but mm-hmm. certainly over the last 5 or 6 years I've become um I've tried to read everything that I can get my hands on in terms of what happened at the moment of colonization what this place was like prior to colonization um the the management of this land um that was um um quite extraordinary by the the many aboriginal peoples of the country there was sort of four or five hundred nations um here and there was dialects within those so we sit in the southwest corner of west australia which is um broadly known as the Noongar lands or the the and and within that there's 14 language groups so I'm in the the Perth metropolitan areas in the Wadjuk language group of the Noongar nation and even within that there's subgroups there's um three or four subgroups that had their own territories and reciprocal rights and so on and um I guess I've started to understand how this continent is fundamentally different to what happens in the northern hemisphere particularly northern europe um northern asia and north america all of which um went through extensive either volcanization or glaciation to refresh soils and they typically have good rainfall whereas here we have um a continent that had virtually no refreshing of soils through volcanization and glaciation or well, there's no glaciation for sure um in a drying landscape as the continent drifts north and uh long periods of dryness with wet winters or uh wet and dry seasons so it means that the landscape offers uh, operates fundamentally differently and we're still treating this place as though we're in northern europe um or or even england and um part of what i do in my practice but also in my teaching life is to um try and see how a western trained essentially a european trained architect might operate in that context and certainly working with students trying to broaden their understanding because typically nationally our understanding of this place is quite poor and there's only just amongst sort of middle australia an emergence of that traditional knowledge um that we really need to get onto understanding for the sake of saving this uh continent's land health and and what do you think in terms of on this particular 
project um what's been influenced there in terms of how you've designed this house yeah how does it come back to this well it's always a bit of a struggle because we can't pretend to know and be how the various aboriginal um, peoples of australia um, were and are it's a very different world view um, and we probably don't have time for me to go into my understanding of that but um, uh, i suppose making work that responds to the landscape the land form being aware of its position of its main you know landscape elements its ecology large-scale trees um, but also native species that can be reintroduced to sort of repair the landscape and return it to some degree to what it might have been so i suppose um, making buildings that um, put you in direct contact with gardens in a specific way that open up in certain ways where they can be remain open for much of the year where lying in bed looking at the sky um, becoming acquainted with where the moon is in the sky and what the what the phases of the moon might be which connects to the tides uh, the rising of the sun the shifting of the seasons the sounds of bird song and wind in the trees um, what birds happen to be migrating through the landscape at any particular time all of which stitch together into a series of interconnected patterns over the course of 12 months which is what the six seasons are um, it's really i'm not attempting to sort of educate people in that but other more about trying to um, in the words of someone's work i admire uh, romano uh, guardini uh, to put you in um, a decisive nearness to nature so that there's this work that puts you much closer proximity to the natural world so that you will build up these affiliations with what's going on and have a greater sense of empathy mm -hmm. for the landscape and maybe live your life in, in more accordance to that rather than in, um, uh, in an aggressive manner against it. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a kind of very much an engagement with the the outside that's what i think is interesting on this project is at those points where you are engaging with the outside so because it's this l shape the garden's kind of brought brought in and closer to the house and, and vice versa the house wraps around it but where you've got those openings like in particularly in the big multi-use space they're big openings but they're very simple openings where you mentioned cave like before the what you see in frames your view there's the way the glazing's done, you don't actually really even see the glazing frames. You see a solid concrete lintel above and then exposed brick on all three other sides. Is that a very intentional move? Is that a kind of almost like a cave-like existence that you're, you've got a, a frame without many limits once it's open? So you're almost inside outside. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think you've captured that very well. Um, some of the architects I really admire are people like Jorn Utzen and Sigurd Leverens, you know, and they're the two the, who invented the frame on the outside that you can't see. Um, in both of those cases, they tended to be fixed windows, which doesn't work particularly well in an Australian climate, which can be brutally hot. I mean, we've had so many days above 40 degrees this summer, it's, um, we've lost count. So it needs to operate, you know, that it needs to operate according to climate, but yeah, the removal of the frame was part of the reduction of the, I guess, the barrier between you and the outside world. And then the raising of the, the sill. So it wasn't a flush threshold where you'd walk from inside to out. It was something you have to step over a bit like 
a submarine. You know, it's a door mm-hmm. in a wall. So that stepping in and out became more bodily. It's also a place where you can sit and sit between the two worlds. Um, and the sort of the primitiveness of that opening and the sort of rusticity as a sort of a sense of material density um, and the sort of the stillness that that room, I think that that sort of material density to me always registers a sense of singularity and stillness that then is set offset by the ephemerality of the garden. We're a very windy city, so the wind is very present. You know, our birds here are really loud. So, you know, the movement of trees and so on, the birdsong is um, amplified by the presence of the window, but then I think the absence of detail amplifies that connection further. Mm-hmm. And the simplicity of materials as well. It's, it's the complete opposite to synthetic. It's it's very raw and, and rugged in its nature. And often I think the hardest thing to achieve that is a window frame. So I think it works really well to, to sort of hide those and put them out the way. Yeah. Well, I think um, the material directness was um, because that has a certain quality that I've described, but also has a certain economy to it. Um, it also means it doesn't need to be painted and therefore it doesn't need to be maintained. Um, but certainly those windows that are on the outside took a lot of detailing and um, for the fabricators took a lot of fabricating. So, you know, one's a trade-off to the other, but I guess combined it produces a certain effect. Mm-hmm. What economic drivers did this um, project have then that, that influenced the way it was designed? Well, I think the biggest um, impact was the project ran over 12 years purely because of um, the economics of the project. So we were commissioned in 2008, I think it was, um, to start work, which we did. And the design is similar to the project that was built, but it was bigger and had more stuff in it. Um, The clients didn't have the money at that point, so we uh, we achieved um, a planning approval. And then the project went on hold for about six years. And by the time they'd got the funds together, uh, my practice had, um, my practice partner had moved to Sydney. Um, I'd gotten a bit more mature as an architect and was able to shrink the project, um, remove quite a bit from it, um, which I think gave it a greater sort of sense of being, there's a sort of an essential quality in it. And just allowed me to sort of evolve the detailing in a way that I wouldn't have been able to back in 2008. Um, and so I guess a financial imperative in 2008 rubbed up against, you know, a slightly more evolved architect six years later. And then in the intervening six years, you know, it was designed, developed. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a point where we were going to break into two stages and do a shell and a fit-out. Uh, at the 11th hour, that didn't happen, and the whole project proceeded and is what it is today. So mm-hmm. economics was paramount the whole time through. And and so the simplicity kind of assists with that in terms of the rawness of the materials internally. And yeah, well, I guess the materials kind of lack are of decoration, simple. right? Yeah, and the, but the plan's also very simple. The plan's basically <laughs> of the extension. As you say, it's an L-shape. And the main set of rooms is a rectangle. So the, the planning is incredibly sort of, there's almost no architecture in it, uh, mm-hmm. but the section works very hard. So I guess the, the money went into the section and the rest of it was kept in check. So that the, and thing the section, 
So the section is this big curved ceiling that scoops up as you kind of transfer from the existing house into the, the new space. Can you tell me a little bit more about about this? Because it runs the full width and it's almost like a connector piece. When you look at the section running through the house, you can see the worker's cottage in a typical pitched roof. Then a big sort of scoop, like in section, it's a, what is it, a backwards J maybe. And then you link to the to the main extension. What's that scoop? doing how and how's it structurally built as i know i understand about the compression and the journey through and underneath it i guess i'm more thinking from above it's a very unconventional roof shape to have um what what's happening there what's happening structurally or you structurally waterproofing um you know how's it connecting these two forms because it it would seem like quite a difficult form to work with to have as a link between two an old building and a new building. I'm just curious how, how it works here. Yeah, so as you say, um, that, that curve runs through the width of the project and as it goes from one side, which is a, the big scoop that um, accepts the sun in the breakfast room, which is actually the simpler half because it's just, it's just that form continued through and is consistent in its short section. Once we hit the sort of the L shape or the rectilinear wing that comes off that, that then runs through a portal space, which is very compressed. And then it runs through the principal living room, which has a pitched roof above and a reasonable amount of roof space. Um, so that curve continues, but it's then cut off by a ceiling plane. And so behind it, it's just simple timber framing, but the, the curve itself goes from tall and then starts to shrink as the roof pitch comes down. And the builder had right. to build one is to, well, he didn't have to, but he chose to build one is to one templates on his factory floor that he then put up in position to get all the framing into place. And then it was a matter of skinning it. So the ceiling's just flexible plasterboard, but setting those things up did take a bit of doing. So it's non-structural. It's a... Uh the whole scoop is a non-structural form that's been created. Uh, It's still the timber framing, but it's just put in on the shape of the curve so that it does what it does with light. Yeah. Yeah. Then when you you go through this sort of narrow entrance from the kitchen and you move into the, the rectilinear space, that's, descri- that's described as a kind of multi-use um, space. And you've mentioned that it's rectilinear, but it does have a big scooping curved wall to the back of it that then shields the bedroom on the other side. So we've gone from a real kind of dominant curve in section. And then as you move into the space, you're kind of scooped up by a big curving wall it reminds me of there's a, a gallery called the curve gallery in the barbican here in london it kind of has that feeling of that kind of space that you can imagine kind of being scooped around by it um what's what's the thinking there and what does it create then going on to the room behind it as well yeah well i guess crudely those two rooms fit in a rectangle and at one end is a bedroom the other end is this sort of multi-purpose room and by taking the wall straight and then angling it up it means that we get the principal room, we get a compression space up a staircase into a bedroom that then has this long wedge shape to it. So if I just lead you through those, so the multi-purpose room is 
a living room, it's a gallery for if they choose to have showings and invite people over. Um, some events have been hosted there and um, Michelle uses it a, as a workshop. She's a counsellor um, uh, and social worker, so she runs workshops with um, other professionals they, uh, and they sort of do professional development work there. And at some point, Yurik may or may not use it in his, his studio. So it's very multi-purpose. It needed to be set up to hang major works. So um, the walls are floor to ceiling without embellishment. The lighting in that space is gallery level lighting, which mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time fine tuning because Yurik needed light to be hitting the cornice line and the floor line as a block and not hit the ceiling so much or the floor. And it needed to be even left to right because his works are quite large and so big block lighting was quite important in that space so then that's that's the multi-purpose room then it sort of squeezes to the staircase that takes you up under a skylight and then through to a bedroom that's then wedge shape and i guess the wedge draws you back in the opposite the direction that you've just come it sort of seats you back in that room there's another little small skylight that locates the the um, the apex of that wedge. So there's a rocking chair next to a little shutter that you can open for the wind to go through. And it's just this lovely little sort of retreat moment where you're deep, deep in a bedroom that's wedge-shaped rather than a room that's square. And then from there, next to in front of you would be the bed with this large skylight and then a window and then the view out to the garden to the east side of the house. Mm-hmm. And it's in a beautiful kind of bluey green marine green kind of color the the bedroom it's a real kind of sanctuary hey it feels very different from the rest of the house the rest of the house is is very raw and then this it's still got the exposed bricks but you've you've painted it all what how, how are colors chosen here are you working closely with the clients on these selections yeah and i was so the proposal was put to them that it should be sort of a rich deep blue whether it's a sort of a prussian blue or an ultramarine blue on all surfaces and the back wedge sort of wall uh, as a linen curtain and i do that because cabinet work's expensive so we often put in a curtain and then have ikea cupboards behind it so you're not spending a heap of money but the curtain tempers the room so the idea was that that space was going to be sort of a deep uh, Prussian blue or um, ultramarine blue, they then took that idea forward and said, well, we don't think actually all surfaces should be rendered equal. Um, leave it with us. We're going to have a think about it. And it was actually Michelle found a sari with the colours that they use, the particular shades of blue and green and gold. So that's why there's gold sort of um, Louis the something or other, 14th, 16th, fake uh, uh, frames on mirrors and so on in that room is the sort of the hint of gold and then the selections of blues and greens which Yurik applied the paint uh, on the walls and ceilings. The walls are a a lime-based paint so they're really healthy in terms of air quality and the floor is a it's actually a, a soap made out of olive husks that can be used as a concrete sealer and so pigment was put on the floor in multiple layers and then this soap product, which is really healthy again, um, was applied. And if you put enough coats on, it builds out this beautiful waxy patina and has this in- incredible sort of soft, velvety quality to it. 
um, and probably has more play in it than a single block colour. It's much more marble than that and therefore probably more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got a kind of patina to it that you could almost think it was a fabric, actually, looking at it. Yeah. Um, with the way the light's hitting it. It's the um, kind of thing that only you can do yourself or you, a client can do for themselves, Who and he's a very skilled yeah. guy, so it's not the <laughs> kind of thing you can give to a tradesperson. Yeah, there's no spec sheet to go with it. No. Um, but you mentioned about it being healthy and, and the same with the, the paints that you're using here. I mean, this is a thing that we like to talk about a lot with our work and kind of you know healthy materials and using them in the home. Uh, could you... I'd be interested to hear sort of your thoughts on that because I think it's a thing a lot of people maybe don't quite appreciate. Um, but just if you could expand a little bit more on, on what you mean by by healthy, what benefit do you think that's giving to the Yeah, sure. Industry? And I'm, I'm not an expert. We do the best that we can within what we know mm-hmm. and we're always building that knowledge. But um, most architects know the term VOCs, which are volatile organic compounds, and traditional paints are full of those and they're really... Um, the the stuff in the paint that allows it to be um, fluid and applied and then it as the paint dries it off gases and that stuff is in the air for quite some time as it slowly releases into the environment. So I guess years ago that used to be oil-based paint with all sorts of solvents that would really stink. Um, acrylic paints, you know, the 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 solvent is water, but there's still organic compounds in there that allow it to be viscous and applied and keep all the particles separate. Um, so that stuff still, you know, off gases and isn't particularly healthy for you. Um, and lime paints are really made out of natural products that um, are just uh, put into an, immersion, uh, an emulsion in some sort of water-based um, emulsion. And so it needs constant stirring. And so you're using natural products that aren't off-gassing and they're easy to reapply but they're, they're healthy. I guess the other thing is in their manufacture is probably where they're healthy as well because you're not having, you know, really complex uh, plant putting all sorts of nasty chemicals together into a concoction. Uh, the process is much simpler and, again, is using uh, raw materials closer to their natural state. Mm-hmm. And is that an approach you sort of taken generally throughout the design of this house? As well as I would say so. Um, you know, the bricks are part of that conversation. The door frames, were, which are a local timber called black butt, uh, are part of that conversation. The way that the timber gets finished is uh, a German product, um, Osmoy Oil, which doesn't seem to have any nasty chemicals in it. Um, the the lime-based uh, wall paints. Um, and even if we're having to use an acrylic paint, we try to use a low or or generally zero VOC paint mm-hmm. uh, rather than low or normal VOC levels. So, yeah, it's something... And bench tops were um, concrete bench tops, while cement's not environmentally that amazing. Um, they're um, made locally and they have a sort of a, a sense of being natural and direct about them. So that that was part of the project's um, aspirations mm-hmm. also, or sort of a sub-objective. Um, I've talked a lot about the kind of the sculptural qualities and or asked you a lot about the sculptural qualities of the house internally. I wonder if we just sort of take listeners outside now and just talk about, well, I think definitely the garden as well, but the the form of the building and how, because it's very sculptural on the outside. You've got, you've got these perforated bricks, you've got the scoop in the wall where the, the cactuses are located and you've got this sloping roof. Um, can you tell me about the design, how you've sort of designed this, building to appear from the outside yeah well 
it was important that um, it felt as though it was carved of a single mass. I mean, I know bricks break buildings apart, you know, and you see the unit as opposed to the whole, which is why corners are sort of rolled and there's at, out, outside at the sort of the break point of the L shape uh, in the lower half, there's a very sort of large semicircular kind of rolling of that junction just so that light also runs around the corner rather than having sharp um, junctions. And I think for me, it just gives that greater sense of it being monolithic and singular and sort of quietly monumental. Um, essentially, that L-shape shields um, that courtyard. Um, Perth's very windy, so it makes a bit of a sanctuary out of the wind. It's also north-facing, which is what you would call south-facing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's where you want to have the light coming in, particularly in uh, seeking light here in winter and trying to exclude it from the building in summer, which is why there's that overhang. So there's a sort of a veranda or overhanging concrete to stop the sun coming in for uh, five months of the year, and the rest of the time it's allowed to come in. Um, the tower and the, the breeze, sort of breezy brickwork is um, so that light is drawn in and scatters across that internal ceiling, but it's also um, addressed, it's not... It filters the sun as it enters the building, basically, so the building doesn't heat up. So mm-hmm. a lot of time is spent in this part of the world stopping light ever from hitting glass because as soon as it does, it gets inside and heats buildings up. So in winter, yeah. we look for that. In summer, we try to exclude it. And that perforated brick, it's essentially a screen, is it? There's then glazing. There's a void and glazing behind it. In That's space. right. There's a sort of a small yeah. gap of about four or 500 millimetres that you can get up and clean the glass. But there is a gap between that and the glass itself. It definitely feels like a house that would feel fresh on a summer's day and, you know, right with breezes and cool and um, just from the way it's designed and orientated and, and massing. And in terms of the garden, do, what involvement do you have here? Were you, do you, did you work with anybody else in terms of designing the garden? Was, was there much design work done on the garden or was it kind of left in its natural state? Most of our projects now, it's taken a long time to get to the point where we do work with landscape architects on most of our projects. We tend to design the hardscape and um, have consultants for the softscape. Um, This project wasn't one of those, so we designed some of the hardscape. The clients um, designed some of the hardscape and sent us drawings saying, what do you think? And my response was, I think you've got the architect gene. Um, They did a really nice job of it. Um, And then they they designed it and planted it themselves. They chose all the various species. But they were working around existing trees. So there's various fruit trees, lemons and limes and so on. There's macadamia trees, which are from the northeast of Australia, which is um, a native nut tree, which are beautiful nuts, huge trees with gorgeous flowers. and various other plants that um, and trees that we were working around. Then the courtyard, we did have discussions around uh, local perennial grasses, which are really very beautiful and sculptural, but they're green all year round. Um, they're low maintenance. They don't use much water, but they're very pretty to look at, and they respond really nicely to the breeze. So um, the garden was predominantly handled by the client with a little bit of input from me. Mm-hmm. And then I've noticed in the garden there's also an outside toilet, sink and, and shower. I mean, they look very public just on the, the back of the house. Is that a typical thing that people would have on a house or is, is that um, an anomaly? 
It's not a typical thing at all. In fact, when it all got installed, <laughs> the tradies were taking photographs and sticking it on Instagram, <laughs> telling everyone, look at this thing, what the fuck? Um, so um, to our great uh, lament, one of the things we had to do when we built the extensions, we had to take down uh, what we call here the outdoor dunny. I'm not sure if you had them in the UK yep. where you know, it was an outhouse in the backyard um, very small little brick building from the, the period of the house because toilets didn't used to be inside buildings. Um, so that had to come down. Now, the, Michelle really loved to go out there in all times of the day, in all seasons, and we'd kind of leave the door open and it was surrounded by star jasmine, so it had this beautiful scent. And for her, that was um, actually a really important thing psychologically to sort of Again, back to this emergent immersion in um, the world that we often forget because of our busy lives. So part of the brief from her was to say, well, can we have that stuff on the back of the house? So we put um, a toilet, a shower and a hand basin literally on the back wall of the house with a small canopy. It is very, very exposed, um, but they've strategically planted so the neighbours can't see in. So it's actually private whilst you're in, entirely exposed mm-hmm. to the elements. It is very private. And uh, we put a lot of time into designing the internal bathroom, which uh, doesn't actually get used anymore, certainly not by Michelle, because <laughs> she spends, you know, any, any of that happens outside in all seasons, in all weather conditions, whether it's rain, hail yeah. or shine. So, um, yeah. But it was to the, the amusement of many tradespeople on site. <laughs> and I mean, it's going to ask: Do they? I mean, do they use the front of the house, the original workers' cottage? Now that they've got this kitchen at the back, they've got the the, the multi-use living space, this beautiful bedroom, the outside toilet. Um, have Have you found kind of interesting how they use the house now? And do they do they tend to spend much time in the workers' cottage part? They do. Uh, I mean, they've got adult children who are around about sort of mid-20s and 30 and uh, just with COVID and university life and so on, they've come and gone and they've needed a place to stay for, you know, six months or 12 months. So uh, at times those bedrooms have been occupied as bedrooms. Um, At the moment their kids aren't at home because they've moved over east. So um, those front rooms have been used as a study for Michelle and also a sewing room. She makes um, uh, beautiful garments and textiles. She's originally a textile artist. So they're being used really for work by her. And I guess the um, kitchen is in there as well and the main bathroom. So, um, and then I guess the two living rooms, if, if they want separation to watch TV or listen to music or do different things, um, they get used differently. Also, mm-hmm. you know, if they want to make a connection with the, the street rather than be really secluded down the back, they can yeah. sit on the veranda and open the blind at uh, the, um, louvers and um so i think they're it's it's all working pretty hard and is adapting to uh you know family outside of the two of them and suspect at some point might even adapt to grandchildren yeah yeah because it's, it's very much a house of two halves it's got a very different feel the original workers cottage at the front and you haven't done a sort of typical open plan let's connect everything through it's mm. quite secretive what's at the back you wouldn't even know it's it's there you know the sequence that we've talked about um, which I can really understand now, understanding that if they have events and if the arts are portrayed in that room at the back, it's like a gallery almost of this sequence of people visiting and then seeing the artwork. Well, that's right. And in those events, um, 
we had one where we were actually it was sort of a conversation between architect and client um, for a group called um, Design Fremantle who are doing great things over here. And, um, you know, the discussion was do they come through the front door and go through the cottage or do they go down the side through the gate and then through into the courtyard through the big opening? And it would actually work with both depending on the nature of the event. So it's sort of got two mm-hmm. ways at which it can handle the public coming in and out if they so choose. And what, what does, what's the public reaction to this place when they see it for the first time? Uh, most people, well, I guess if they don't like it, they probably don't tell me. Um, <laughs> so everything I've heard has been really positive because they're the people most likely to tell me that they like it. But certainly at this Design Frio event where we had sort of two groups of 40 or 50 people through, um, I guess it's unusual. Um, uh, it's hopefully taps into one's emotions uh, that's what it's intended to do, and that's both the interior but also how it connects to the garden and the landscape, um, that, um, yeah, the response has been very positive. And we've won a few awards, so maybe the profession also thinks it's pretty good too. <laughs> and, and what about the clients? What's, um, what feedback have, have you had from them because you're good friends with them? Um, well, you know, it's so easy for an architect to say their clients love their work, which... But um, they've been interviewed separately with me, not in the room, and they've said that. So I can say that mm-hmm. with um, – they've also said that if they did another project, they would use me. So that has to be Great. an endorsement. Um, for both of them, I think they really find that, particularly with Michelle, who has quite a full-on work life dealing with people with um, – all sorts of issues, drug and alcohol and suicide issues, um, it's a great place of relief for her to yeah. be home and to recuperate and um, and Eurek the same. So I think that sense of having a place to literally go and recuperate is its greatest success for them, as well as having a sense that um, they can bunker down at the back and hide away or they can kind of come to the street and... Um, sort of take part in neighbourhood life and so on. So it, it allows both of those things to occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's a fantastic, fantastic project um, and really fascinating to sort of to talk through. I think, I think you've done a fantastic job on it. It's a very inspiring piece of architecture. Um, and I think definitely this, I mean, a lot of architects talk about compression and tension and sequence and i think if anyone was to sort of see that embodied in a house this is a perfect example of it it's incredible how you go through from this kitchen space compress living space compress and bedroom as a sequence um it's beautiful and i I love the way these curves just work in different planes as well it's very it's a relatively small house but it's got so much so many elements of, of the unexpected um what did you learn from this have you did you feel that you kind of learned anything through the process of designing this and and seeing it realised? Yeah, I think I really learned that, well, probably as a younger architect, I thought time was your enemy, you know, that things had to happen and you had to get them all right, right at the start and there wasn't room for changing things and um, rethinking things. And I, I've come to realise that time... Um, just to, to contemplate one's decisions is, is a godsend. Um, 
the 12 years, I think, was the making of the project because it just allowed me to get a bit more mature. Um, mm. So I, I think I learned those kinds of things. In that process, I came up against a building that um, we designed six years prior and found there were things that I thought were no longer particularly acceptable, that they had areas where there was um, opportunity for much greater resolution. So it was interesting to pick something up after six years and say, oh, you know, as a critical assessment of it, mm-hmm. the overall decisions and the overall direction is we're, we're sticking with it because it's right, but the refinement of it, um, uh, I can't even describe how much of a um, surprise it was that it needed to go through that because it, I just, I think I'd learnt more. So that, that's probably mm-hmm. the lessons that I took away. And is there anything, because of the complex nature of it, sculpturally as a project, anything that surprised you? Um, as you when you first got to move through this space compared to it being a small physical model to then being a real life built thing yeah well I guess I mean you'd know this that when you're building buildings it takes so long to build um, that you've been through them hundreds of times and so you know it's a bit like watching your fingernails grow that you you can't really pick up on the nuances Um, probably I get that when I go back now because it's finished and, you know, it sort of sits in my recall when I leave and then I go back and to see it reacting to the different seasons and the different times of the day. In fact, also see it reacting to what exhibitions or um, they're not so much exhibitions. Yurik does a lot of setting up of his work in the, in the multi-purpose space just to see how things might be curated, what things he might need to work on because his work is very much about working with what he's done before. So he's always pulling things out of his archive and reassembling them. And then I'll go there the next time. There's a whole different arrangement of pieces of work and objects. So seeing that alive is one of the absolute great joys to see mm-hmm. um, his work alive, but also the way that they've furnished the house in a way that is not very conventional. I mean, there's animal skins and animal rugs and amazing artworks and... Um, Furniture that maybe is closer to um, Art Pervere than it is to, you know, high-end um, furniture design and the directness in that and the care that they take in that. Um, so to see the way that they curate their lives and their stuff and it's reasonably unconventional but the building absorbs it and I think is better for it, all of those things um, are something that I am constantly surprised by and really enjoy every time I go back. Mm-hmm. Okay, Simon, I'm going to ask you now that there's three questions that I ask all my guests at the end of um, the interview. And the first one is, um, what is the one thing that really annoys you annoys you in your own home? In my own home? Yes. Um, probably that we lack an extra room. The rest of it's okay. Actually, no, the one thing that I think annoys me, because we did a house for ourselves 15, 16 years ago, and we couldn't afford two stories, and so it covers a lot of the site. So if we did one now on the same site, we would go two stories and compress the floor plate to have more garden. So that's probably much more the correct answer. More garden, yeah. more land health. <laughs> yeah. And then if you could describe one house that you have visited that has really inspired you and tell me why. Um. Hmm. 
I should have read that bit of the question sheet because I should have been more prepared. <laughs> um, oh, look, there's lots of buildings that, that inspire me. I think probably if I go back quite a few years, it would probably be John Soane's Lincoln's Inn Fields house, which I've definitely, I mean, I've visited that maybe 15 times. Every time mm-hmm. we go back to the UK, I might make one or two visits. Um, it's something that comes up in teaching students all the time. I'm always referring them to it. Some of them get sick of me talking about it. Um, but I think I learnt about top light and this sense of spatial unfurling, spatial depth, the value of complexity. So probably that's mm-hmm. that's the one. Just not too far away from me here. Yeah, right. Uh, Lucky an you. Easy one to visit. <laughs> and then, if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? Um, I think. I think I'd probably choose someone young and emerging, and just because I think, as you would know, it's so hard to start a practice, and. There are some really talented people in WA, so someone like Penhale and Winter, who are just down the road from me in Fremantle, someone like that just to give a young practice a go and to back them in, um, as my clients did on this house, would be who I'd choose. And would you advocate um, a six-month, a six-year pause so that they could uh, they could revisit the design? Yeah, I'm not sure my partner would accept that, so that definitely <laughs> wouldn't be happening. <laughs> They'd get, they'd get sick of us. <laughs> um, well, Simon, thank you very much for joining me today and uh, for talking about Beaconsfield House. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, George, for having me on, on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to find out more about Simon Pendle and Beaconsfield House, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. And you can also try out the Instagram page to see the work of all of my guests. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review to, to help other people find the podcast. In episode eight of the podcast, I featured another home located in Perth, designed by the architect Nick Brunsden. If you would like to listen to that episode, you can play it via the episode's link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.